0: Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Did you know that scholars who work on Jesus divide starkly into two major camps? On the one hand, the evangelicals do such great work on the existence of God, the historicity of resurrection and the reliability of Scripture, but then they read the Gospels through the filter of their theological commitments, always coming away with a Jesus that looks suspiciously like the second person of the Trinity, regardless of what the text says. On the other hand, liberal scholars tend to get the message of Jesus about the kingdom right, but then due to their anti-supernatural presuppositions, deny the resurrection and end up with a failed prophet. In this presentation, recorded way back in 2008, I share about my own quest to benefit from both evangelical and liberal scholarship to identify the genuine Jesus of the 1st century. Here now is episode 428, looking for the historical Jesus between evangelical and liberal scholarship. (laughs) Good evening everyone. Good it's an honor to be here and to uh, address you. I'm very excited. I've written 19 pages. Bless my heart, as they say in the South. <laughs> I will not read 19 pages to you. <laughs> Bless my heart again. Thank you. I'm one of these people that likes to know what's new in the field of theology, and in particular, the subject for tonight is Jesus of Nazareth, and what the scholars, what, what the books are being produced. So I go to the bookstore a lot and they, they have cafes in these, in these huge bookstores these days. And, and what I do is I go to the Christian section and I go to the, the shelves that are very familiar to me and what I do is I, I sort of scan the titles and I, and I try to see what's new. What has come out that, what's the next great book that has come out that's going to change everything. You start to get a feel for where all the books are and, and what, who's writing what. And th- this one time I was there, and there was an Asian girl, a 20-something year old Asian girl next to me, and, and she was staring at the books, and I was, and we were just kind of, lo- and I looked over, and she, she had this weird sort of quizzical look on her face, and she had passed by, you know, a few times, and I, and I, I just kind of turned to her and I said, can I help you find something? You know, I don't work here, but, you know, and it's kind of a weird question, but can I help you find something? Because I probably know more or less where the books are or whatever. She says, I, I'm brand new to the Christian faith, and I want a book describing the basics of Christianity. And so at once, I'm, I'm very excited. I mean, what an opportunity, right? You get to recommend the one book this brand new person who's a blank slate has ever read on the subject of Christianity. And then at the same time, I, I feel this like ineptness sweep over me <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm staring at this shelf of books, because there's really only two kinds of books there on the shelf the evangelical Jesus is God genre and the liberal, deconstructionist, anti-miracles, Jesus is a failed prophet type. So I don't really know what to, to recommend to her. I could recommend to her Bart Ehrman's book, Jesus is the Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium, which gets the kingdom exactly right, but then concludes with, isn't it so sad that he got killed and the kingdom didn't come and he's a failed prophet? Or I could recommend to her the book called Jesus. There's an innovative title, right? by Chuck Swindoll, the Chancellor of Dallas Theological Seminary, in which he does wonderful with the miracles, you know, supernatural stuff. There's no problem there. But in his first chapter, he, he makes a case, who is this man? Who is this man? And there's like these different scenes into Jesus' life, and it concludes with, and he's God, the second member of the Trinity. I'm just like, hmm. I don't think that's really the first place to start somebody off either. So I think I, I just told her to read the Bible. Uh, <laughs> And it it struck me as kind of like I'm in a weird position here. Basically, what I'm saying is that none of these books can help you. I'm sorry. I know that sounds strange, and you probably think I'm just this cult person. But the Bible's on the other shelves on the other side, and and maybe you can find some help there. And uh, that that seems to be my conundrum. You know, what is the deal with this polarized, either you have this evangelical thing or this liberal thing. Where's, Where's the middle of the road here? That's what I seek to find. I was thinking about this earlier. Either I'm crazy, which is possible, or there's a massive deception in scholarship on Jesus. Because I'm convinced that the evangelicals and the liberals do some things really well and some things really badly. And I I, I want to propose something. I, I want to propose that on the one side where we have this mountain of evangelical scholarship, and on the other side you have this mountain of liberal scholarship, that we can somehow walk between the two, taking and borrowing the best from both, but leaving the the worst behind. So that's sort of my goal. I'm going to be referring to evangelicals and liberals. What do I mean when I say evangelical? Well, I mean somebody who basically believes in orthodox Christianity, who believes God is a trinity, you go to heaven when you die, you're once saved. You know, the standard run-of-the-mill Christianity that you find in TV, on the radio, and then the liberals would be those who don't believe the Gospels are really a good source of history. They need to be sifted through, and the bits that are historically accurate need to be pulled out, and then a more correct version of Jesus needs to be reconstructed from what was left there. So that's when I say evangelical, I, that's what I mean, and when I say liberal, that's what I mean. I've been a student of the Bible and of scholarship for a while now, and I'm noticing this trend. And so I just want to go through and essentially do these four things. The first is I want to look at evangelical scholarship on Jesus, not in total uh, all evangelical, just on Jesus studies. I want to offer some praise because our evangelical scholar friends have done some good work in certain areas that that we really need to know about and that are a a great service to us. Then I want to offer some critiques of the evangelical scholarship. Then do the same thing for liberal Jesus scholarship. And then number three, I want to suggest a way forward, combining the best from both. And then lastly, I'd like to propose a challenge for us. So what's the good news about evangelical scholarship? See the bottom of page one there on the right side? What's the good news about evangelical scholarship? They've done very well on proving God exists. Evangelical scholarship has been on the rise in America for decades. Many evangelicals now hold positions in the top colleges in the United States. Furthermore, as the new atheism movement has been emerging, evangelical philosophers have been busy at work on the question of God's existence. Notable contributors have presented some excellent arguments using science, logic, ethics, metaphysics, epistemology to establish that there is a God and one does not need to commit intellectual suicide in order to believe in him. And I have to start here. I have to start talking about God's existence because when you're doing scholarship on the historical Jesus, when you're, when you're trying to put together what Jesus was like, it's an important question whether or not God exists. It's a presupposition we need to get right. So this is what the evangelicals have been producing, the evangelical philosophers, these arguments for God's existence. I find them entirely compelling. Fine-tuning argument, cause-and-effect argument, argument for morality and intelligent design. I have no time to go into any of this. I have a brief description in the paper. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with lots of this stuff there are powerful and convincing arguments for God's existence, from history, from logic, from science, from other things like the moral argument. But if God exists, that doesn't really tell us who God is or what God's like, right? So how do we get to say that the Christian God exists, that the God of Jesus exists? Well, the evangelicals have been busy at work on that question as well, and they have been working on the question of whether or not Jesus has been raised from the dead. And if that can be shown without assuming the Bible is inspired. Without assuming the Bible is inspired, can you show that Jesus really was, historically, raised from the dead? Many of the evangelicals have done fine work on this. And these are the four facts. This is uh, Dr. William Lane Craig's approach to this. The four facts he mentions are, number one, the honorable burial of Jesus. Number two, the empty tomb. The tomb really was empty. If it wasn't empty, they would have produced the body once this movement started going around saying, He's not dead, He's alive, and He's uh, been resurrected. They would just produce the body if the tomb wasn't empty. Resurrection appearances. You know, there's no question in whether you are an agnostic historian or you are an evangelical theologian, there's no question in anyone's mind that the disciples had experiences in which they believed the risen Jesus appeared to them. So you can dismiss it as a hallucination if you like, but then you'd have trouble with the empty tomb or the idea of the belief originating in the first place. And, I, and we could get lots into that. You know, this is, this is great stuff. Uh, number four, the origin of the belief in Jesus' resurrection. You know, why, why did the Christians start going around saying Jesus was raised from the dead? Well, you could say, well, he was raised from the dead. Well, that's why. Oh, okay. Well, what if he wasn't raised from the dead? How would you explain it? You'd have a really tough time because all throughout your Old Testament, and Jewish expectation of the first century, resurrection is always linked with this event in the end of the world, where everyone gets raised together. There's no idea of a, a resurrected Messiah in the middle of history. You know, it's just kind of a weird belief that came out of nowhere 2,000 years ago. It's almost as if somebody actually got resurrected. You know, that's some work they've done there. And so, if we can show that the hypothesis, God raised Jesus from the dead, if we can show that that is a historically plausible and likely event to have occurred over any other explanations that have been offered, that really grounds us in something very significant. And it has major theological implications. First, it says to us that there is a God. Second, it says to us that it's the God of Jesus because He raised people don't get raised from the dead all the time. So Jesus it must be very special. And Jesus talked a lot. So if God raised Jesus from the dead, then the words of Jesus are now very important for us to listen to. And if God raised Jesus from the dead, he's not a failed prophet. That's the bottom line. Because why would God raise a failed prophet from the dead? So if Jesus is raised from the dead, I think it's very significant. This will all come in later when we talk about the liberals. Much more could be said in favor of the excellent work done by N.T. Wright. He wrote the book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. He counts seven mutations from the Jewish view of resurrection to the Christian view of resurrection that he thinks are inexplainable apart from an actual Grave emptying, resurrection, based on historical grounds. He, he's saying these things, not on theological grounds necessarily. Gary Habermas has a new book out, "The Case for the Resurrection," and then we have William Craig stuff, who has endlessly debated the atheists and the skeptical scholars on these these issues, and I found to be very convincing, and others. So I believe there are solid historical grounds to indicate that God raised Jesus from the dead. But then there's another question. Can we trust the New Testament Gospels? Because we didn't assume they were true in order to show that Jesus was raised from the dead. But can we trust them? Have they been reliably transmitted in these leather-bound books that we carry around, right? In those four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Do we have what they wrote? Or do we have something that's been sort of mutated and something that evolved and has so many variations in it that we really don't have what they wrote? You know, that's really the first question. The second question is, when they wrote what they wrote, were they writing history or were they just sort of writing things that were evangelical in nature? They were trying to evangelize the pagans and they didn't really care about getting the facts straight. They were just trying to evangelize people. Is that what, the way the Gospels were or were they writing history? If you read them, you come to the latter position. I've got a couple of slides here. Reliability of transmission. First of all, the extant manuscripts, that's the manuscripts we have in the museums, they're remarkably close to the time of writing. If you compare the New Testament documents to any other ancient writings, how close they are to the actual events they describe, we're talking about the earliest little bit being maybe 20 years from the time it was written, whereas in, in classic literature, you know, if you have 500 years gap, you know, it's not really that big a deal. You know, nobody doubts that Homer's writings are reliably transmitted, really. We don't have conferences on that saying, oh no, he's a, he's a liar, You know, he's trying to make people give money to the church or something. Then we have this, this huge, massive number of manuscripts. It's not like we have five manuscripts and we compare them together and we come up with the New Testament. There's over 5,000 Greek manuscripts and then we have lots of other writings in Coptic and Syriac and other languages totaling to maybe 24,000 or something like that. And even if we lost all of those, we could still reconstruct the entire New Testament just about from quotations from the early Christian writers in the second and the third and the fourth century. So we have an embarrassment of riches, as it's been called. According to A.T. Robertson, the Greek text we have today is 99% identical to what the apostles actually wrote. What about that 1%? What about that 1% that he's leaving out there? Well, those are the variants where one manuscript says one thing and another says something else. and We're not really sure which one's right. And if you have a, a decent Bible translation, they'll have footnotes on that. You, you've probably seen those. Early manuscripts do not contain this verse. Or, you know, like the, adulter- the story of the adulterous woman in John 8. It's not in the early manuscripts. It's a nice story, but it just wasn't in the original Gospel of John. I hope I didn't shock you with that. It, it may well be true. I don't know. But it's not in the original <laughs> manuscripts. And any translation you read will, will indicate that in there. But that's part of the 1%. Were they writing history? F.F. F. Bruce says, if you take a look at Luke's writings, there are many different details in there that you can check out using archaeology and history. Luke does not seem to be writing fable. That doesn't seem to be the genre he's, he's after. He's not really a romancer. The historical trustworthiness of Luke has indeed been acknowledged by many biblical critics whose standpoint has been definitely liberal. So even the liberals are saying there's some serious historical trustworthiness in Luke's writings. Now, what did Luke write? The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. So, I mean, we're talking about a massive amount of writing here that covers the whole account of Jesus' career in ministry and the early Christian movement. So we're, we're talking about a, a serious outline of the Christian movement with lots of details filled in. Uh, The picture which Luke gives us of the rise of Christianity is generally consonant with the witness of the other Gospels and Paul's letters. And he puts this picture in the frame of contemporary history in a way which would inevitably invite exposure if his work were that of a romancer, but which in fact provides a test and vindication on historical grounds of the trustworthiness of his writings, and with them of at least the main outline of the origins of Christianity presented to us in the New Testament as a whole. In other words, whenever you come across a detail in Luke or Acts that you can check out, it does check out using archaeology and the other historical sciences. It's unlikely that if he was so attentive to detail, uh, as he says in, in the first chapter of Luke, you know, he carefully investigated the eyewitnesses, what they said. If he's so, he's so careful to detail in all the events we can check out, then uh, I think we have at least some sort of good reasons to say that he's probably reliable on the rest. Furthermore, the Gospels do not read like fables. C.S. Lewis is famously quoted as saying, "I've been studying myth all my life. I've been studying legends all my life, and I've read the Gospels. They don't read like myth. And it's the sort of thing that, once you're familiar with, you know, it's not. You just, you just know when you're reading it. Has anybody read the Gospels before in the room? Do they read like Jack and the Beanstalk to you? You know, it seems like they're trying to tell literal history. You know, it seems like they're trying to report facts." and not just make up a tale with a nice moral at the end. It seems much more significant than that. Richard Baucom has uh, recently come out with a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, which for many people is considered, in the evangelical camp, is considered uh, revolutionary. It's going to change the face of uh, historical Jesus research because his thesis is that the the writers of, of the Gospels were eyewitnesses. They weren't people who came two or three generations later and sort of pieced together some oral tradition and mostly produced the myth of Christianity as opposed to the historical events, which is the the reigning viewpoint in most scholarship today. And he has this thing about recollective memory. And so he says, this is Timothy Keller talking about Bauckham's book. He says, recollective memory is selective. It fixes on unique and consequential events. It retains irrelevant detail. It takes the limited vantage point of a particular rather than an, an omniscient narrator. And it shows signs of frequent rehearsal. These same marks are in the Gospel narratives. Vivid and important events can stay with you for decades if frequently rehearsed and or retold. Factor in the fact that the disciples in the ancient world were expected to memorize Master's teachings and that many of Jesus' statements are presented in a form that was actually designed for memorization, like the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. There's, there's structure to that that would lend itself to be easily memorized. The parables—they're vivid pictures. You have every reason to trust the accounts. Uh, so that's just a little bit on that. You know, I'm not trying to be exhausted. I'm surveying what the evangelicals are doing well on Jesus scholarship, and if you're interested in that, I've got footnotes all over the place of books that go into that in greater detail. Unlike the Quran, the Gospels do not conspire to agree on every point, but act like true eyewitnesses. True eyewitnesses tend to see things from different angles. It's not like you, you call them in, the policeman calls them in, and they give exactly the same story. If they gave exactly the same story, the policeman would dismiss all of it because he, he would know that they collaborated ahead of time to all say the same thing. And so when we look at the four Gospels, we don't see them following exactly the same script, do we? There's variation, there's different angles on things, and that lends itself to credibility, I think. Whereas with the Quran, one of the early caliphs or imams, early leaders, went around and burned all the, uh, the different manuscripts and said, well, this is what we're going to stick with, and that's it. And there was a serious control in the text. Christianity's never been like that. We've had the four Gospels, a four-dimensional view of Jesus. And there have been attempts to, to get rid of the other Gospels like Marcion did, but that's been rejected. To this day, we hold all four there together. I found this interesting. Even so-called contradictory scriptures, the skeptics like to point to the four Gospels and be like, look at these two verses, they don't match up quite, right? They've been worked out by the evangelical scholars to such a degree that Craig Blomberg, he's a professor at Denver Seminary, he says, despite two centuries of skeptical onslaught, it is fair to say that all the alleged inconsistencies among the Gospels have received at least plausible resolutions. So let's talk about the bad news of evangelical scholarship. There's these built-in limitations. Because evangelicals have an a priori faith commitment to a certain list of orthodox doctrines, their scholarly work is not primarily to discover truth, but to validate it. So they're not out there trying to discover who is Jesus, what was Jesus like? Let's use all of our sciences and our history to find out what was Jesus like. No. They know what Jesus is like. The church has handed down to them a certain set of creedal formulae that st- tell them this is what Jesus is like. And now their goal is to use the historical methodology to prove that the received version of Jesus is the correct and, and valid one. So they're, they're proving something. They're not discovering something. And I find this phrase a lot in books by evangelicals. They'll be doing good work and I'll be getting excited, you know. And then they'll get to this phrase and say, and that's why Jesus is God. And I think that everything they're doing is really aimed at getting to that phrase right at the end. That's why Jesus is God, the second member of the Holy Trinity. It seems like you might be trying to get there too much. You know, let's just, you know, let the text speak a little bit. In other words, if somebody comes along with an unbiased point of view and comes up with a Jesus using the same historical methods that is not God, but rather a human being appointed by God, they're not an evangelical. So that's why evangelical scholarship can never produce a Jesus that's not God. It just cannot. It has the built-in limitation of that fact. Because if they did produce a different Jesus, they wouldn't be evangelical anymore. You see what I'm saying? So that's the limitation we have built in here. But what if, and this is our thesis for our whole movement, but what if the orthodox view of Jesus is wrong? Just what if? So if your limitation is always to produce the same Jesus that you know is always right, But what if your assumption in the first place is wrong? What if the early biblical Christianity got corrupted and the original orthodoxy became heresy? And the heresy became orthodoxy. In other words, what if the original Christianity mutated and this mutation is what we're now enforcing on the text? And that's, I think, our position, isn't it? That there was a biblical account that people, 6 billion people around the world can read in all these different languages. And that's why they keep coming to the same truths. But if the church gets in there and says, oh, oh, you're reading that wrong, let me show you how to read that. Uh, Luther famously had these incredibly long prefaces to every book of the New Testament in his German translation of the Bible to ensure that the people wouldn't read the Bible wrongly. He wanted to make sure that they came up with the correct doctrine. When you have to write a preface that's as long as the book itself, like Romans, you know... (laughs) your theology might be a little shaky there, right? This possibility is not open for discussion within evangelical scholarship. The idea that maybe original Christianity mutated before the creeds got written, that idea is not, it's not open for discussion. So that's a severe limitation. What's some other bad news about evangelical scholarship? There's two areas I want to focus on. One is the deity of Jesus, and the second is their definition of the kingdom of God. So how does this deity of Jesus thing play out? What they famously do is limit the options. I don't know if any of you have ever read Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He's got a famous phrase in there that Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. You've probably come across that, right? So the options are limited. It's taken for granted Jesus claimed he was God. Jesus claimed he was God. That's that's the assumption. Either Jesus was a deceiver. That is, he's a human who was lying to people, saying he was God when he really wasn't God. Or he was crazy. Just sort of like the person you meet in the park that says, I'm God. And you're like, yeah, okay. And I've, I've met people like that sometimes. They're very fascinating to me. Uh, the, third one, the third one is uh, Jesus really was God, the second member of the Holy Trinity. But here's what I want to say about this. Are these all the options? Is, is that all there is? Jesus claimed to be God and he was lying. Jesus claimed to be God and he was crazy. Jesus claimed to be God and he really was God. Are those all the options that are available to us? Where's our option here? What happened? Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah of God, the anointed one of God. That's not not one of the options in the evangelical literature. So what they'll do is they'll go and they'll prove that Jesus was raised from the dead and they'll say, and that's why he's God. Rather than us, what we would do is we would say, Jesus was raised from the dead and that's why he's the Messiah. Which is a world of difference. But sometimes we get categories confused. What did the disciples say when Jesus posed the question to them? Remember that? Jesus said to them, who do you think I am? Who do people, what's the buzz on the street? What are they saying about me? Did they say, "Uh, some think you're a lunatic, and others, you know, they think you're a con man, they think you're deceiving us, but some say you're God, the second member of the Holy Trinity. (laughs) Are these the options that they responded with when Jesus asked them the question, who do people say that I am? No, they didn't respond like that. They didn't sound like Josh McDowell. They said, some say you're John the Baptist, what category is he in? Human being. Others say Elijah, another human being, a prophet. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So that, those were the options that people in Palestine were saying, well, he's like one of these prophets. That's what he seems to be like. And then here's, here's the crux, right? Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Peter stiffens up a bit and he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's the part where we all get excited, right? And that's, that's all we're trying to say, is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But unfortunately, all those phrases seem to be a little bit muddled in the world in which we live today. Simon's confession is that Jesus is the human Messiah, the long-awaited Davidic ruler, the Son of God. Son of God does not imply deity. I mean, I wish I could get them all in a room and say to them, the Son of God does not imply deity. I wish I could just say that to them. It does not mean that He's God. It's a title about a Davidic king, 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. It's not saying that he's going to be a spirit or an angel or a god. It's saying that God is going to father him. And with Jesus, it's clear. It's, it's absolutely clear that there's a dual meaning here because not only is he the anointed one of God, the Davidic king, but he's literally begotten by God. There is uh, this this thing that happened in the womb of his mother. Luke is explicit. The angel is explicit, I should say. as recorded by Luke. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So what makes Jesus the Son of God? God is His Father. He literally fathered Him. And then also, this other idea that He is the Davidic King. So Jesus is the Son of God precisely because of the miracle in the womb of His mother, because God begot Him. To assert that Son of God equals God the Son, which happens sloppily, you know, I, I would argue sloppily, You know, the, the switch between those two phrases, is to anachronistically read later theology into the historical accounts. But what about his miracles? Jesus healed people. He must be God. Uh, can any mere man do the, the supernatural things that Jesus did? That's the question we get. How many, how many times have you heard that? Uh, is Jesus a mere man? Our response, yes. He is a human being. Elijah raised the dead. He called fire down from heaven. Is he a mere man? Whatever that means. Peter raised the dead. He healed scores of people with his shadow. Peter healed people with his shadow. Got to give him credit for that. (laughs) Peter walked on water too. Is he a mere man? What about our beloved brother Paul? He blinded a man. Healing's awesome. But when Paul's preaching the gospel on that little island there, right? This guy comes against him. He says, you will not see for a season because you've opposed the truth here. He's actually blinded a man. He'll scores with a handkerchief and preach the gospel throughout the Mediterranean world. Is he a mere man? The answer is, yes, they're all men. There's nothing mere about men, though, who God has redeemed and empowered to do awesome things. And so the question is not, is he God because he did these things? The question is, could it be that God is in him doing these things? There's lots of good books on this stuff, I'm not saying Jesus is not special, that Jesus is not unique. Jesus is. He's absolutely the most incredible human being who ever walked the planet and who is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Uh, He's begotten by God himself. He lived without sin. He communed with God on a level far beyond these other men. So I'm not trying to pull Jesus down either. I'm I'm just trying to get our categories right. Uh, So let's talk about the kingdom of God. I'm doing the bad news about evangelicalism. Okay, so I'm a little negative right now. We'll get to more positive things in a second. (laughs) Evangelical scholars often assert that when Jesus came, the kingdom came. But, ah, I don't know if that... Does that quite work? William Craig, who I praised his work on the resurrection of Jesus, he says, Jesus claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come. And as visible demonstrations of this fact, he carried out a ministry of miracles and exorcisms. So, in other words... In in Jesus' ministry, the kingdom had come. He's going around saying the kingdom of God is here. Believe it because of these miracles. It's not quite what the text is saying there, is it? He's saying the kingdom of God is near. Near is not here. That's obvious. If somebody is near to Simpson Wood, they're traveling and they're near, they're not here yet. That's obvious. But we can't let those two things get confused, I don't think. C.H. Dodd is, is generally credited with being the premier champion of this viewpoint that the kingdom came with Jesus. Basically, he says that in his resurrection, the end events all had taken place. I've got to kind of speed up here. When liberalism frees us from dogma. Isn't that the, the goal of liberal theology? To liberate us from the shackles of this imposed doctrine that it isn't even uh, biblical in the first place? Well, let me just t- talk to you about the beauty of liberal scholarship. What's the beauty? The beauty is they've got no creed up front they're actually doing this history thing. They're peering into the first century world and they're saying, what happened? Let's use all our sciences. Let's use the best language people we have in the world who don't just read the the language in the context of the Bible, but the language in the context of of the Roman literature of the time, the Jewish apocryphal literature. You know, let's let's get into the, the, the nooks and crannies there of the language and let's use all of our sciences. Let's use archaeology. And let's construct what happened. Let's reconstruct what happened. What we had is this uh, famous book came out in 1892 called Jesus' Proclamation of the Kingdom of God. Johannes Weiss came out with that book. And essentially his point is, I have it in a quote there, when Jesus spoke of the kingdom, he was not referring to the church, nor was he speaking of God's rule in the human heart. He was, rather, announcing the imminent advent of an eschatological reality that would transform the physical world. Isn't that beautiful? 1892. That reality would be ushered in by the final judgment, which would mean punishment or annihilation of the condemned, and reward in paradise for the righteous. It's on the books for over 100 years there. And then we have this work by Albert Schweitzer, which really popularized the message of the kingdom being the center of who Jesus was and what He was about. But before I get into this eschatology and apocalypticism, because those are weird words that are probably not all that familiar to all of you, I have this wonderful quote by John Dominic Crossan, with whom I disagree on probably everything else. But this, you know, when you, when you find your, your enemy agreeing with you on a point, it makes it twice as strong, doesn't it? Like, for example, when the, uh, the Jewish polemic goes out, his disciples stole away the body. We find in that polemic an accidental affirmation of the empty tomb. I was like, oh. So this is John Dominic Crossan's affirmation of our viewpoint of the kingdom stuff. Eschatology is a vision of God's own cleanup, of God's own world now grown toxic from evil and impurity, injustice and oppression, war and violence. You know, there's something to be said for somebody who can write like that. <laughs> An apocalypse. So that's eschatology. It's the end thing that we're all waiting for. It's the kingdom of God. An apocalypse adds to that expectation claims of a special revelation about it. Strictly speaking, an apocalyptic seer could be proclaiming anything about an aspect of eschatological faith, but primarily and predominantly an apocalyptic eschatology claims a special revelation about the imminence of God's transformative action. It is to happen soon, the apocalyptic seer asserts, and any day now, certainly in our lifetime. Those who are foolhardy give a precise date." History is filled with those people. Those who are wise do not. So what we're saying here is that Jesus, this is the liberal scholarship, they're saying Jesus is best understood as an apocalyptic prophet who proclaimed the kingdom of God, that you know, this kingdom is near. There's lots more that could be said. You know, I encourage you to, to read this paper to fill in some of the gaps here on uh, what the liberals are saying. I just want to you know, sort of fast forward a bit here. We're running short on time. And uh, there's a wonderful quote here by Bart Ehrman where he talks about the coming kingdom. And he gets it exactly right. It's definitely there in the literature on the books, no question about it. Then there's this whole issue of how do we even know that Jesus really was an apocalypticist? Well, if we take a look at John the Baptist, he preached on radical repentance through baptism, forgiveness of sins, wrath to come, two categories of people... The Messiah would be the agent of the judgment, right? He's going to come, separate the wheat from the chaff, burn them up or baptize them in spirit or both, however you read that. And then the kingdom is nearly here. He's going around saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. This is what we call apocalypticism. It's hard to misunderstand him. Either he was a first-class apocalypticist or the writings about him are hopelessly distorted and we just can't know anything about John the Baptist. So the question is, why did Jesus... Go to John for baptism. Even more important for us who don't believe Jesus ever sinned. Why would Jesus go to John for baptism? Did not the former submit to the latter's baptism because Jesus, the former, believed what the latter taught? So if the Baptist ever heard that repentance was required and that judgment was coming, must not Jesus have thought this too? If Jesus didn't agree with John's message, what was he doing getting baptized by him? It wasn't because he was a sinner in need of repentance. You know, he wanted to publicly associate with John's message. He was saying, this is God's man here, and, I, and I, I want to lend my credence to that. The same exact words in Matthew are used to describe John's message. This is Matthew 3.2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and Jesus' message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Are we not to say that they had the same message? The same words are used to describe both of them. And then when we look at the writings of the, of the Christian communities that followed after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, What do we find? We find that they're filled with lots of abundant evidence that Jewish eschatological expectation stands at the conclusion as well as the beginning of Jesus' career. In other words, the Christian movement was highly focused on this end-of-the-world stuff, this kingdom of God, this second coming of Christ stuff. It was at the heart of the Christian viewpoint of the subject. Jesus is the only connector, though, between John the Baptist and the early Christian movement. Why not ask the man himself? There's a novel idea. We look through the sayings of Jesus as recorded for us in the Gospels, and we find that he's proclaiming the kingdom of God in repentance. He sends out the 12 and the 70 with the same exact message. They don't change the message. John Hick cuts to the heart of Jesus' message when he says, Jesus' central message, then, was a call to repent, to believe that the kingdom was about to come, to begin to live the life of the new age. This was a life of love here Jesus stood within a strand of Jewish thought that became prominent in the first century. Uh, Is Jesus a failed prophet? Okay, this is the bad news uh, about the liberals. They get the kingdom right, but then they say, and isn't it so sad that he was killed by the Romans and the kingdom never came. There's a lot of business about this failed prophet stuff and also the uh, anti-supernatural tendencies of the liberals. They assume there's no God and now let's do history. Or Whether or not there's a God, let's forget about that. Let's just make it so that our methodology of history, our historiography, is completely naturalistic, so that there's no pro-Christian bias. Well, what happens? You have to get rid of all the miracles of Jesus, and so now you're at it with the scissors in the Gospels trying to find the authentic parts. And I I interact with that some in the paper and, and try to present my own argument against that sort of thing. And then where are we left at the end of the day? Dale Allison has this stunning remark for us at the end of his book, he says, And yet, despite everything, for those who have ears to hear Jesus, the Melanarian herald of judgment and salvation says the only things worth saying. For his dream is the only one worth dreaming. If our wounds never heal, if the outrageous spectacle of history filled with cataclysmic sadness is never undone, if there is nothing more for those who were slaughtered in the death camps or for six-year-olds devoured by cancer, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If, in the end, there is no good God to calm this sea of troubles, to raise the dead, to give good news to the poor, then this is indeed a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. So either the kingdom happens or Jesus is in the category Josh McDowell labels as lunatic. But if it does come, then his dream is the only one worth dreaming. The future Jesus preached about is the only future worth preaching about, and it alone is that in which we should put our faith. But how can we know which is the case? How can someone know the future? What if a future event was projected into the past in order to demonstrate in the middle of history that this prophet was in fact validated by God? And essentially my case is that's the resurrection. The resurrection is the validation that we seek to know that God has vindicated his prophet who preached about the kingdom. So however we work out the kingdom of God is near and the eminence expressions, we have to hold it in tension with the fact that God has resurrected him. So the idea that he's a failed prophet is just not going to fly. Intellectually, I don't think. So, let me just conclude. I've got some uh, challenges to our movement. Any movement that hopes to survive must have its identity clear. Our very existence as an independent stream of theological thought depends on this. There is often a tendency to cozy up with the evangelicals because of the similarities we share with them regarding our mutual trust of the biblical documents and our faith in the resurrection of Jesus. However, we are not evangelicals. We are not evangelicals because of our rationalistic rather than creedal approach to the truth. In other words, we are repeatedly doing the Berean exercise to discover truth rather than confirm what the creeds have always said. This process has led us to an understanding that Jesus was a human being. He is not the second member of the Trinity, as well as many other truths. So since we are not evangelicals, and they don't want us to say we're evangelicals, they don't appreciate us using their label. They came up with the label, they get to decide who's in the label and not not in the label, right? And we're not in it. They don't want us to be in it, we should just concede that point. It doesn't mean we can't benefit from them. So who are we? Does that that mean that we are liberals? Are we liberals? Does we feel liberal? I feel liberated. Again, we have to say no. The liberals will reject us as quick as we can say, Jesus rose from the dead, and I believe it because the Bible says so. As soon as you would say that to a liberal, they'd be like, oh, you're a fundamentalist or something. You're not, you're not one of us. So who are we? Who are we? That's the question, isn't it? As a movement, who are we? At a foundational level, we are restorationists who are on a quest to understand and practice primitive Christianity. We're on a quest. We want to understand and practice that early form of Christianity. Our thesis is that the church became corrupted in the second and third centuries when a remarkable shift occurred from Jesus' apocalyptic paradigm to that of Hellenism. That's the Greek way of thinking about things. We are on an expedition whose destination is not a place but an understanding. We are on an expedition. We are on a quest. We're still searching. Uh, We're not dogmatic. We're not rigidly certain about everything. It doesn't mean we don't have faith. It doesn't mean we don't have confidence. It doesn't mean we don't move. It just means that we are not infallible as some other movements Claim to be. We wish to peer back beyond this Hellenistic mutation to find what the early Christians believed and did. Then we need to sort out how to live for God in our post enlightenment, post modern, post Christian, post everything culture. In this endeavor, we have much to learn. There are many unanswered questions. However, we do have some answers, right? We don't have all the answers, but we have some answers, and I find our answers to be the best. The gospel of the kingdom and the creed of Jesus have been recovered. Shall we now hide them under a basket? May it never be. Let us speak to our neighbors, friends, college professors, families, to spread the good news. Let's publish articles in scholarly journals and get our books into the major bookstores. The world is in desperate need for the message of Jesus. Just as much today as in the first century, if not much more. That the one God of Israel has plans to fix up this place and he is going to do it through his anointed one. The crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth, who is coming back to judge the living and the dead. So here's my challenges. One, recognize the importance of our movement existing between evangelical and liberal scholarship. Not confusing our identity with these other movements. Number two, tell people about the gospel of the kingdom and the creed of Jesus. Number three, penetrate the scholarly journals. Get our stuff into these journals as an independent stream of thought. The next one, get books into the major bookstores. And I I don't know how to do these things. I'm just saying this is what we need to do. Uh, So don't ask me questions about how to do this. Develop websites. Well, I have a website to popularize the message. And number four, see number two, right? Get the word out. Get the word out. We need to speak the gospel. So that's what I wanted to say tonight. Well, that brings this presentation to a close. What did you think? I'd love to hear your thoughts. In particular, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the position I took that those of us who are part of the movement, that, you know, really, if you're somebody who approaches Scripture from a Restorationist point of view, someone who is not afraid to look behind the curtain of the creeds of the 4th century, all the way back to the New Testament period of the 1st century, and say, you know what, I know it's traditional to believe that the damned are tortured forever in hell, and I know it's traditional to believe that everyone goes to heaven when they die, and it's traditional to believe Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential, but... I don't find those teachings in the New Testament. I just don't find them there. Uh, then you are part of this movement. And and my question to you is, would you identify as an evangelical? Would you identify with liberal, or as they like to designate themselves these days, critical scholars? How would you self-identify when it comes to these two huge camps? would love to hear your thoughts on that. Come on over to org and find episode 428 looking for the historical Jesus and leave your feedback there. Some folks have done that for our episode last week which was called Why Did Jesus Die and it explored a number of atonement theories. Someone named Michael wrote in, "Wonderful teaching, Sean, God bless you." Carrie wrote in, "Very interesting to keep in mind as I read through the scriptures." M Kara said Divine justice and mercy, as described in Ezekiel 18, clearly denies any moral or theological grounds of vicarious punishment and salvation on the merit of others, either a father like Adam or a son like Jesus, clearly contradicting the salvation theory proposed by Paul, who believed Jews would eventually be saved by the merit of righteousness of the fathers and Christians by the merit of Jesus' righteousness, culminating in his death. Socinius, I think uh, M. Korah means to say Socinus, was probably right in not following Paul on this key theological stance. The Quran, in line with Ezekiel 18, also denies salvation on the merit of the fathers or Jesus, but stressed individual responsibility. What are your thoughts on this issue? Right at the start, I think it's good to remind ourselves of what Ezekiel 18 said. And as I recall, it went through several generations, making the point that the child of a righteous person will not be blessed because of the righteousness of the Father if the Son turns out to be wicked, and vice versa. If a wicked person has a righteous son, then that son will not be punished for the wickedness of the Father. So it is that each person stands on his or her own as far as righteousness. And I would say that based on this singular chapter, Ezekiel 18, if that's all we had in the Bible, it would make it sound that salvation is earned by performing righteous deeds and... Damnation is earned by performing wicked deeds. But this understanding is problematic when we consider the totality of Scripture, on the one hand, and the debt owed as a consequence of previous sins committed. In any good attempt at biblical theology, we need to consider all the Scriptures together. For example, the Scripture that says in Ephesians 2, That we were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and that as a result of that, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of humanity. But because of what God has done in Christ, He has, through His grace, saved us, made us alive together with Christ. And this occurred through the mechanism in Ephesians two 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so the same Bible contains Ezekiel 18 as Ephesians 2. I guess I would throw it back to you, M. Kara. How do you interpret Ephesians 2? How do you interpret Romans 3 or any of the other soteriological New Testament texts? I believe we should work all these things together. That's part of my restorationist manifesto. I believe the Bible is coherent. Now, there can be development in Scripture. They call that the history of redemption, that over time, more information is given, more understanding comes to light. And perhaps that's what's going on here, that in a general sense, God is not going to punish people because their parents were bad. But at the same time, it is true that people do suffer because their parents are bad, if you think about it. If your parents squander all your family money on gambling, you're going to grow up in poverty. And you are going to suffer for the sins of your parents. That doesn't mean God's causing that to happen, though. That's not His judgment. But is there a way out? Now, Ezekiel 18 recognizes that someone can turn to righteousness and that that person will be blessed. But is that blessing salvation? Or is that blessing just God's favor in that person's life? I think that's really an important question for us to think about. There is a general sense in which living in accordance with God's right ways will bring blessing just in general, and then also God's blessing by his own grace poured out on our lives. But does this wash away our previous sins? Does this earn us eternal life? I don't think so. I think these are two different subjects that we're pitting against each other here as if they're the same. If we take the position that Jesus died solely to leave us an example of how to live righteously, I would say two things. One, that doesn't even make sense. Why would Jesus allow himself to be captured? Couldn't Jesus just as well provide a moral example by not staying in the Garden of Gethsemane? What is the point of getting beaten to a pulp and executed from the standpoint of demonstrating righteousness? Wouldn't it be better for him to live many, many, many years and go through many different kinds of situations showing how to handle life in every one of those situations. Besides, the Bible over and over and over says, more than any other category says, Jesus died for our sins. And I don't think it's adequate to say he died because we sinned in crucifying him. That doesn't I don't think that flies at all. Uh, he died on behalf of our sins. He died for our sins. He died to pay the ransom. Those are my initial thoughts on Ezekiel 18. Thanks for writing in. Kirby also wrote in agreeing with the Muslim position and uh, giving some more information there about that. Uh, I would say on the Muslim position, I've spoken to Muslims about this before, that there's a profound sense of injustice in the Muslim system because God puts your good deeds on your right shoulder and your bad deeds on your left shoulder, and whichever one's heavier is which way you're going to go. But the problem is, what about the bad things you've done? If you have robbed a bank and then done many other good things afterwards, you still robbed a bank. You still have to face justice for that crime. And I think it's great that people do good and pursue righteousness, but that doesn't mean that magically all their bad that they have done disappears. And I think that's really one of the key aspects of those of us who are attracted to substitution views, whether satisfaction, penal substitution, or communal substitution— As I said in my presentation last week, I I like the communal substitution theory. I think it makes the best sense. But the idea there is that we we need someone other than ourselves to save us. This is the whole concept of grace that Martin Luther fought so hard for. Now, to be sure, I think Martin Luther went too far. I think he swung the pendulum so far the other way that works no longer had... Much of a place in the theology grace and works are both important and i would take more of a erasmian position for those of you familiar with desiderius erasmus and how he saw things but regardless we do need a savior in order to cover atone for the sins that were previously committed and uh, really that's the role i see jesus playing and that solves this conundrum where God can be just and merciful at the same time. The Muslim God is not just, because the Muslim God does not punish sin. The Muslim God grades on a curve, and as a result, those who have more good than bad are then saved. And they really did earn their salvation. It really is as simple as that. So that wouldn't work from a New Testament perspective, not not with Ephesians 2. But the Christian God looks at people in their sin. The wages of sin is death. We know that in Romans 6.23. He knows what we deserve. And he provides a way to pay the debt, to satisfy the penalty. And that is the death of his one and only son, the only one who lived righteously, the only one who lived without sin, the only one who stood in Adam's place as the representative of the entire human race. And this is the one who comes in voluntarily to fulfill the prophecies of, say, Isaiah 53, and to be pierced for our transgressions, to whom the stroke was due. And when he did this, he was able to set the balance straight for us. And that's the whole idea of justification, that we were set right, not by our own works. But having been set right, we are duty-bound to pursue righteousness in a very Ezekiel 18 kind of way. So that's my two cents on it. I, I know that probably will not satisfy at all. Uh, those of you who are arguing for a salvation by works position. But I, I still haven't seen anything that really deals with Ephesians 2 or any of the other statements found throughout the New Testament on this very subject from Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, and so on. So would love to uh, dialogue more on this. Thanks for writing in. If you'd like to support Restitudio, you can do that at our website. We'll see you next week, and remember the truth has nothing to fear.